0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to Podcast Land. Today, my guest is Rachel Kleinfeld, and we're talking about the most violent societies on Earth. Sounds like a existential crisis waiting to happen, but it's actually quite hopeful. So Rachel is an advisor to the UK and US government, among many other organizations, and a new book, A Savage Order looks at all of the different ways that societies can organize themselves into disarray, so from gang violence to electoral violence, organized crime, and a whole bunch of other nasty situations you don't want to be involved in. Rachel's done a fantastic analysis of why those situations arise, But more importantly, she's looked at the strategies which can be implemented to stop corruption and to halt and reverse these issues and situations. It's the uh, mark of policymakers to strategize but not execute, I think, based on some of the things that she says today. And it does fill me with quite a bit of hope that we've got people like Rachel who are not only... uh, grappling with the data, but also making plans to make the world a better place. So please welcome Rachel Kleinfeld. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Rachel Kleinfeld, Modern Wisdom, how are you today?
1: very well great to be here chris
0: uh, i'm really excited to speak to you today it's uh, a turbulent time in politics and the the 21st century for governments trying to make themselves work effectively so i think it's going to be a, a really interesting conversation i'm reading your bio here a senior fellow of the carnegie endowment for international peace and the founding ceo of the truman national security project is that right Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Those sound like situations where there's lots of serious stuff happening all the time.
1: (laughs) Well, there's certainly a lot of attempts to uh, have serious conversations about serious issues. Yes. Um, (laughs) But, you know, the 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 world of think tanks in Washington, D.C. is uh, is one of advising. So we advise our government, we advise your government in Britain Mm -hmm. um, and all around the world trying to trying to make a difference.
0: Yeah, I, something tells me that you don't get much time to just like crack jokes and kind of chill out. It's probably a lot of serious stuff.
1: Uh, we have our fun, but, um, hey. you know, I'm not, I'm not present there very often. I spend an awful lot of time at 40,000 feet, so, um, you know, flying from place to place. To So my fun is generally on the fly in different countries doing, you know, eating street food in Afghanistan or, uh, or riding lorries in Bangladesh, that kind of thing.
0: That's pretty cool. So we're we're going to talk about A Savage Order, which is your new book. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you tell us why you started writing this and and what did you want to find out when you began?
1: Absolutely. So when you work in a think tank, there's a lot of serious talk, as you've discussed, but there can also be a lot of talk that doesn't really go anywhere. And so I wanted to see, could we do anything about the problem of violence? I spent all my time reading about it, thinking about it. How do we end conflicts? What do we do about violence? And it turned out we knew very little about what actually worked. And so I pulled together a big conference. I brought together the experts on electoral violence, on organized crime, on gang violence. You know, you have it. We had them all in a room together. If a bomb had gone off in that room, you know, the, been the, ruined. the mass of, of brain power on violence would have been ended. Um, and I said, you know, what do we know? And we put together a literature review on here's all that we knew, which was quite a lot. We we had a great deal of knowledge, actually, about how you fight gangs, how you get better policing, all sorts of things. Um, and then I said, OK, well, how would you get a corrupt police force in X country to adopt these ideas? And, you know, the room just went silent. And I thought, OK, that's the problem I need to focus on for this book.
0: Wow. Um, so you must have had to include certain areas and exclude other ones. Were there certain geographic locations that you focused on?
1: Yeah, so when I first wrote the book, I thought it would be a pretty typical think tank book of uh, lots of little ideas that you know, lots of little different kinds of violence and different ways to fight it. And so I picked case studies on every continent on earth that was settled, So not Antarctica, but everywhere else. And um,
0: <laughs> if there's wars going it, on in Antarctica yeah. and gangs, roving gangs of uh, like, emperor
1: penguins, yes. were really upset at each other. It yeah, could be. I've never been to Antarctica, but sequel. Uh, I focus. <laughs> <laughs> My husband would be thrilled. Um, so, you know, we went to uh, Italy and we looked at why the mob ended in Sicily or, pretty, or was really decimated in Sicily and, and um, was still very present in Naples and was spreading in the rest of Italy. We looked at the Republic of Georgia, which was an ex-Soviet state, broke away. Why had it gotten so much better when Tajikistan had fallen into kind of an authoritarian dictatorship? Nigeria versus Ghana um Mexico versus Colombia. Why did Colombia end its civil war and really fight its violence while Mexico is uh, just getting worse and worse in terms of violence there? Uh, Bihar, India versus Jharkhand, And um, that was one state had a lot of Maoist violence and criminal violence and insurgency. And right below it, the state that had been the breakaway, the two had been one state and they'd been separated by the federal government. The other one couldn't fight and one fought. And then my sort of fun case, you ask about whether we have fun in think tanks. My fun case was looking at the U.S., the U.S. South after the Civil War versus the Wild West. And why did the Wild West actually get better pretty quickly? It went from wild to not particularly wild in about 30 years, whereas the U.S. South is still the most violent part of America and certainly was um, back then. And after the Civil War, it became more and more violent over time. And so that was probably the key to the whole book, actually, was that that case.
0: That's interesting. So did you find any common principles amongst all of these areas? Obviously there'll have been characteristics that were particular to within them, I suppose. What were the overarching narratives that you came up with?
1: Yeah. So as I said, I thought I was going to write lots of little things. I mean, what does the mob have to do with the post-Civil War American West? But what I found as I went from place to place was these themes kept recurring. I kept seeing the same ideas, the same thoughts. And I was trying to figure it out. When you do a book like this, you travel all over, you're really jet lagged, you're talking to everyone you can get your hands on. So you, you, know, you might do 80, 100 interviews in a country, you're reading everything. And my husband laughed at me because he said, you know, for five years, you never read a book that wasn't about violence and I'm <laughs> starting to worry about you. Yeah. Um, you know, So I'm just, you're taking all this information then you're trying to make sense of it. And as I was trying to make sense of it, I was doing my fun case about American history. And that was the key because the Wild West was a very violent, weak state. And when we think about states in my profession that are very violent and that are democracies, and I should say I only looked at democracies because I wanted to know how they got better, and autocracies have a very different way of getting bad and getting better. It's just a different kind of a situation. So when you look at a very violent democracy, people tend to assume that they're weak states. After all, if you can't protect your voters, you must be too weak to protect your Uh, voters because uh. your voters must be asking for protection. It just goes to reason. But The U.S. West was that. So I tell the story in the book of Theodore Roosevelt, who was a president of ours 100 years ago, but he was also a cattle rancher before he was a president in South Dakota. And someone stole his boat and he needed to get his boat back. And so he got together a posse, you know, typical Wild West fashion, and they went down the river to get the criminals and after three days on the river, they found the bad guys, they arrested them, they put handcuffs on them or whatever they had back then, you know, tied them up onto their raft, and then it froze, the river froze. And so for two weeks, they were stuck on a frozen river with three criminals that they had to feed, they had to keep everybody alive, they had ford this frozen river, they finally hit land, the posse leaves, they have jobs, they need to go back to their ranches. Theodore Roosevelt was independently wealthy, so he takes his criminals and he walks for 36 hours. He walks with them to the nearest jail. And you can imagine that not being a particularly fun experience. Mm. Um, and when he got to the the town that had the jail, someone there said, well, why didn't you just shoot them? And that made a lot of sense, actually, because in that kind of a circumstance, you, know, you can't sleep for 36 hours because it's you against three criminals. You can't, you, you know, the, just the sheer logistics of bringing someone to justice in a weak state that has poor capacity is a mess. And so you get a lot of violence that is people trying to solve these problems for themselves. Mm-hmm. And you see that in a lot of weak states today. And that's the theory when we go to help Afghanistan or we go to help uh, Nigeria, we say, oh, they're too weak. Let's bulk up their security services. Let's train them in how to shoot. Let's train them in logistics and so on. And help them fight people that they clearly want to fight. But that was not the issue in the U.S. South. And so that was the key, because in the U.S. South, you had courts, you had judges, you had police, you had all the things you need for a state. It wasn't a weak state at all. What it was was a complicit state. And so in the U.S. South after the Civil War, the old Confederate leadership wanted to be back in power, but they couldn't be because blacks had been enfranchised. And so they weren't going to vote for their former slave owners and so on. And most Confederates had been disenfranchised. So what do they do? Well, at the same time, you had the Ku Klux Klan start up and you had a bunch of groups, Knight Rider groups, as they were called, these white supremacist groups all over the South. They didn't start because the politicians made them start. They started because they were racist, horrible people. But the politicians saw a confluence of interest. What the politicians saw was that If you harassed and terrified African-Americans, you would also be terrifying the voting base for the other party, because they were going to vote for the other party. And so if you chased enough of them out of town, if you killed enough of them, if you scared enough of them, they wouldn't vote. And so that's what happened. And so you saw pogroms and lynchings and so on spike right before elections. And you saw people get away scot-free, because the deal that the Confederates made, an implicit deal, but um, fairly explicitly implicit. The Ku Klux Klan had their big annual meeting the same weekend at the same hotel in Tennessee as the Democratic Party, um, of Tennessee. So, you know, it just happened. But, um, you saw a lot of parties back then write, uh, violence into their electoral plans. You know, their get out the vote plans had these, uh, parts in them that talked about electoral violence and, and using that as part of their strategy Really, and the Congress at the time. Yes, really people don't know this part of the U uh, S history. We don't talk about reconstruction.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I, bet you, I bet you don't talk about it. That much.
1: <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, it's a rough period. Um, Bill Burns is actually just about to do a documentary on it. So then hopefully people will know more about it, wow. but the U S Congress voided more than two dozen elections because of the level of violence and, um, And sent people back and, you know, you had to do recounts that that was so bad. But as Confederates got back into power through these violent means, as they suppressed the vote of the other side and got back into power, they, of course, turned back the clock on federal legislation that would fight that kind of violence. They made it harder to do. And uh, the Supreme Court was quite conservative, and it worked with them and said, no, no, murder is a state issue. Federal law doesn't cover murder, so you can't try people. There was a Ku Klux Klan Act that was a law to make uh, a murder a federal crime because they knew that the southern courts weren't prosecuting it, and the, you know, they turned that back. So gradually, within about a decade, decade and a half, the old Confederates who had lost the Civil War won the peace, mm. and they were back mm-hmm. in power. And the deal they had made with these violent groups was, okay, you can commit your violence. We're not going to um, help you. We're not going to give you arms. We're not going to give you money, but we're going to give you impunity. You're going to be allowed to do it as much as you want, and you're not going to go to jail. It's going to be impossible to convict a white person for killing a black person um, or raping. Or you know, That's what I saw in country after country wh- were these implicit deals that are being made with states that aren't weak, but have deliberately chosen to allow a certain amount of violence by other by non-state actors, as we say in the business, by groups that are not part of the state for their own reasons. Sometimes it's bribery. Um, Sometimes it's electoral violence, like in the South. They Mm -hmm. want Mm -hmm. to suppress the other vote. Sometimes they want money. So in Colombia, a third of the Colombian parliament was being had their campaigns paid for by paramilitary groups. The paramilitary groups were deeply tied to the drug cartels. So, you know, who's not going to get prosecuted? Um, You see that same kind of thing. You also see just personal enrichment, you know, uh, uh, some particular leader. You're seeing that in Central America right now um, where Jimmy Morales in Guatemala just kicked out the UN Council that was looking into corruption. As soon as they started moving from organized crime corruption to campaign finance corruption, suddenly they got kicked out of the country.
0: Are you allowed to Uh do that? Are you allowed to just get rid of the UN?
1: Um, In that particular case, yes, because they'd been invited in and the UN uh, has to work with the member state mandate. So the attorney general, basically the law enforcement had invited them in and said, hey, we want the UN to clean up our business here. And the executive who had been elected on an anti-corruption platform, (laughs) but clearly with some problematic background to that, uh, would let them do what they wanted to do to a certain point, but not
0: too far. Within, Within the confines. So there's a couple of things that have come up. First off is the um, campaign violence that you mentioned, to me, sounds exactly the same as the rule that you guys have in ice hockey where you're allowed to punch each other in the face until one person falls on the floor. Like, it just seems like a completely bizarre rule that's kind of loosely associated with the actual game but totally should not be allowed like you shouldn't be allowed to punch another sportsman in the face in the same way as you should be allowed to use tactics which encourage people persuade people towards your particular point of view but not punching them in the face like it just—it seems that is
1: how how electoral democracy is supposed to work your (laughs) violence is supposed to be eschewed by all sides you know (laughs) but it's so easy right if you can get away with it in these states and you don't think you can win legitimately? Why well, you've got your not? Fallback plan, you right? have to be a pretty good person. And so, so you see this being used over and over and over again in these countries um, because they have impunity; they can do it.
0: Yeah, I get that. Uh, the other thing, so you mentioned right at the very start of that little segment, you mentioned about um, countries that have weak democracies or pe- people that, th- that generally think about weak. What do you think? Uh, that the general public at large, or potentially even your colleagues as well, what do you think that they think of when they think of a weak democracy? What do you think that word brings up?
1: Sure. So I mean a particular thing. I mean a democracy that um, that is highly, highly polarized and highly unequal. That's where you see this happen. Highly polarized, highly unequal. So the people are at each other's throats um and won't necessarily believe facts about the other party so you see in italy for instance the christian democratic party was pretty tied together with the mafia um, for many many decades they were using them for get out the vote Um, the mafia would then get contracts the mafia would be able to hire more people for construction and what have you those were more people to get out the vote and it was kind of a tidy little system um, the Communist Party kept saying this. They kept saying, hey, look, the Christian Democratic Party is working with the mafia. And the Christian Democrats would say, oh, that's just the communists talking. Do you want to believe the communists? Besides, they're tied in with the Soviet International. And that was also true. The Communist Party of Italy was deeply, deeply um, paid for by the Soviet Union. And so They could they could dissuade people from looking into the mafia context by undermining the credibility of the communists. So you see that kind of polarization making it impossible to solve the problem and you see high high levels of inequality and the inequality matters because it makes it really hard for the middle class to imagine what's going on in other people's lives. When um, these democracies become violent the middle class doesn't tend to face the violence they tend to look different you know in Guatemala for instance. Uh, they're lighter skinned, they're taller, they can be a head taller than an indigenous person, they live in different neighborhoods. And so the violence is happening to poorer people, more marginalized people, people who look different. And when it happens, you read it in the newspaper, maybe. Maybe it doesn't even make the paper because it's so normal for people to be harmed in those parts of town. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, well, they're in the bad part of town. It's just criminals killing criminals. That's what happens in those parts. And so you see a lot of rationalization on the part of the middle class where they say, it's over there, it's not touching me, I can ignore it. And besides, they're probably involved in the business, as it's usually. In Mexico, for instance, even though 20,000 people um, are dying a year, they say, oh, it's probably just people involved in the business. It's not regular people like me. And so I can in- distance myself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that I'm going to guess as well that the middle class will be a, a heavy bulk of the voters as well, and probably the ones who would be the ones that will swing also, and make big differences in elections.
1: That's exactly right, because the the poor and the marginalized they just don't vote as much. Maybe they're being, maybe they're facing election violence that's keeping them from voting. Yep,
0: punching um, in the face. Maybe again. they
1: just exactly, exactly. Who's going to play ice hockey? Following apparently Americans do. I don't follow ice hockey, but a lot of people won't play ice hockey if those are the rules. Right, you're not going to vote with with that. Um, But it might also be that there's just nothing on offer, right? If it's an oligarchic system, it's a democracy, but basically it's the same elites who run the show, whether it's right or left, whoever you vote for, nothing's going to change for you. Why take the time to bother voting? And so you see a lot of people choosing not to vote because they don't see an option, even if the violence isn't specifically targeting them. So you're right, the middle class are the voters. And if they can pretend the violence won't hit them, it can go on for a really long time and get pretty darn bad.
0: I get that. So other than the issues of personal uh, safety and personal privacy, and then the, um, uh, I guess, the manipulation of particular parties getting into power within these countries, is there a a wider problem than this? Is there downstream? Is there something that happens that you can see if these inequalities and these weak, weak democracies continue to roll forward? Is there a, a a 2.0 version of this, which is a bigger, nastier beast that we really need to be worried about?
1: Um, In fact, yes. So that, that structure I was of really, is- I was
0: really, really hoping you were going to say no. <laughs> I really <laughs> hoped you were going to say no. I
1: wish I could say no. I wish I could say no. The book, I should say, is positive. You know, the book is about how you get out of this system. Uh-huh. So we can talk about how you get into it, but I'd love to talk some about how you get out of it, because yeah, that yeah. was what interested me. But yes, it does get nastier, because what basically happens is you have a group of politicians who think... We can't win a legitimate, clean election. We're not going to get in power. We want campaign finance money from organized criminals. We want to enable violence that's electoral violence. We want to take bribes ourselves. And if the voting public knows how corrupt we are, they're not going to vote for us. So for various different reasons, they think they're not going to win a particularly clean election. So they enable this violence and um, use these violent groups to help them fill up their campaign coffers. You know, maybe they don't care about the violence. They don't want that to happen. They just want the money, but they're going to let it happen so they can get the money. Uh, whatever the cause, that violence starts continuing. Well, the middle class buy their way out. So they buy private security. They live in gated communities. They buy houses in nice parts of town, you know, to, like anyone in, in any normal place. They try to do what they can to provide for their kids and so on. So, You see this proliferation of private security services in a lot of these places. In in Spanish-speaking Central America, every single country, they outnumber a police, um, These private security. And you see that everywhere in Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan. Um, So that's what the middle class does. So the violence falls on the poor and the marginalized. And that's kind of the implicit deal with these countries. You know, you don't kill the voters. You don't kill the middle class. That only happens by accident or if it's sending a particular message to someone who's getting nosy, an investigative journalist or something. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The violence falls on the marginalized. What do they do? Well, they can't turn to the state because the state has been politicized. So the second thing that happens is, the, the leadership, these politicians politicize their police and security services because they can't have the police and security services arresting the violent groups that they've promised to give impunity to that would break their promise. Mm. So they have to they have to make those groups more political. And it turns out when you politicize your security services, good people don't want to stay in them. Um, Perhaps not surprisingly, morale just plummets for people who really want to do their job. Mm-hmm. And what you see is a lot of violence. Um, if you're if you're a good policeman in a bad system like that, that's letting off bad guys. What do you do? Some people turn to violence, and they say, "Look, I'm a white hat. I'm going to use extrajudicial violence because I know that the the judges aren't going to convict these people and the prisons aren't going to keep them." So you start seeing these death squads that start up um, from police to, to do their job. <laughs>
0: Death
1: squad. Sorry, death I, I terrified. Oh no, no! About, I just
0: yeah. death death squad is really what I don't want to bump into, like at all. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. you really. It's true. It's true. Um, but you see, you see them proliferate, and then we, and so those death squads are often conceive of themselves as white hats, right? They're just going to target drug dealers. Mm-hmm. But you know, first you kill the drug dealers, then you extort some money from the drug dealers so as not to kill them. Then pretty soon you're a policeman running a criminal gang that's affecting regular people. And so that's what you see is this kind of trajectory. And suddenly, if you're a poor person who's being targeted by the criminals, you also can't turn to the police because for all you know, they're working together. They frequently are. Um, And if you call the police, you're just as likely to run into the person who's kidnapped your brother that you're calling the police about as, as to be helped. And so you don't do that. So what do you do? Well, the mafia comes in or insurgents come in, the Taliban in Afghanistan, or gangs come in and they say, look, we'll protect you um, for a price or we'll protect you against the other gangs. Or you see vigilante groups start and and the vigilante groups tend to be young men who want to do the right thing at first. But you give a lot of 18 year olds guns and a lot of license and pretty quickly those groups all go downhill, too. And so what happens is you get these self-defense groups that become criminal groups. You get criminal groups that come in and act as more legitimate uh, protection than the state does. And so you see these things like in Colombia, you had people at Pablo Escobar's funeral. Pablo Escobar ran the Medellin cartel. He killed hundreds and hundreds of regular people. He killed hundreds of police officers. He set off bombs at bookstores for little kids. I mean, not a good guy. But he also built lots of low-income housing, and he built soccer fields for people, and he gave away a lot to charity. And at his funeral, people said, we're going to go to his tomb the way we would to a saints to pray. Um, because he did so much for the regular person, right? So you get these Robin Hood criminals who pose as Robin Hood and they give away charity. and you see them all over the world. and they're they're doing all these horrible things, but their persona is that um, they're the good guys fighting yeah. a bad state and they can lodge within these uh, poor and marginalized communities because the state is even worse. So, you, you... In the book, I tell the story of, of Haram, and we can get into that. But, you know, it can get pretty bad.
0: Yeah, it seems like it, the the um, inequality and the desire for people to have some degree of protection and, and to feel like they're part of a tribe again and included is almost creating the equivalent of a market. It's like a niche in the market, right, for someone Absolutely. to step in. Yeah. So we've talked about the bad stuff. Um how can we fix it? Did you come up with any solutions? And if so, what were the, what were the routes that you found that seemed to be the most uh, efficacious at getting around these issues?
1: Absolutely. So it was a positive book. You know, that was my goal. If I couldn't come up with something good, I was just going to go to Mexico City and open a cooking store or something. And I like to cook. (laughs) I could do that. Um, There's no reason to keep studying violence if there was no way to solve it. But thank goodness for my livelihood um, (laughs) and my normal life. I did come up with a very common pattern that you saw in all these countries. The first step was the criminals. Um, The criminals would overstep. The criminals would bring too much violence to the middle class. Usually it was by accident. Usually it was that um, criminal groups were fighting amongst themselves and the violence just spilled over, um, or terrorist groups were fighting for recruits, and so they were getting more and more uh, elaborate in their terrorist attacks. But for whatever reason, the violence finally starts hitting the middle class. And then the middle class had a choice. They could either vote for a more repressive state. Um, In Central America, it's called mano dura, iron fist policies. In America, they call it three strikes and you're out. But it's basically give the state more license to kill, give the state more license to lock people up um, for smaller reasons. And if they did that, the violence would get even worse. And I talk in the book about why those repressive ma- measures tend to backfire. The gangs meet each other in prison, they learn from each other, um, they oh, metastasize God. behind bars, because what, what more can you do? They're already arrested. So they um, learn how to run transnational networks. And so you you end up with a much worse problem if you throw a lot more young men in jail really quickly. yeah, um, for all sorts of reasons. The other way the middle class could do could go is to vote for a more inclusive state, a less unequal state. And that was the beginning of things going well. Usually, they needed kind of a social movement to help them make that choice because it's much easier to vote for repression. It makes a lot more sense, you know, tough on crime and politicians could claim to be tough on crime, while not changing the basic governing structure that was holding up all this violence. So to fight for inclusion, you tended to have a social movement that said, wait, 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 this governing order is rotten, it's corrupt, it's violent, there's bad things happening. In the book, I tell the story of the US civil rights movement. Um, and then I kind of uh, show how that parallels what happened in the Republic of Georgia and Colombia and so on. But if you get a lot of people who vote for a good politician, who runs in order to fight this violence, then you have a chance. But it, the politician then has to do a couple of things that are really hard for one person to do. And in the book, I found that um, sometimes one politician could do all these three things. In India, that, that happened. But often it was politicians at different levels of government, because what they had to do was make dirty deals with the violent groups, because the state was so weak that they can't just fight their way out of the situation. It's too weak to fight because in in Italy, one of the reformist mayors, for instance, said, I don't even trust my secretary. I think the mobs infiltrated that far. And so, you know, how do you fight when your whole state is rotten? In Colombia, when they were trying to fight Pablo Escobar, the intelligence kept leaking out of the police and right back to the cartel. So, you know, when you've got a leaky situation like that, so they need to make deals where they give these criminal groups... Some kind of get out of jail free card, often the chance to make corruption um, from jobs in the state. In Georgia, they put the two big warlords into the state. They actually give one the Ministry of Defense and one the Ministry of Interior um, so that they would stop killing each other in the streets. So something not so pleasant, number one. But then number two, they have to make the state more inclusive. So those things are absolutely at odds, right? The state has to then help the poor and care about the marginalized people yeah. and make them feel part of the same state. Really hard for the same person to do that. And then the third thing they have to do is fight the remaining criminal groups and violent groups. So you make, make a deal with them, get rid of as many as you can through the deal, create inclusivity, which gets you more intelligence and gets you the poor people who had been um, inadvertently or undesired, you know, they didn't want to harbor these criminal groups, but they didn't have a choice. They start turning and they start turning to the state. And then you need to fight. If you can do those three things. And I saw that happen in a number of places, but often it was, you know, Colombia. the president made the dirty deal and did the fighting. The mayors were the ones who were willing to build a more inclusive state. Hmm. But fine, together it worked and together they made it happen. If you could do those two things or three things, then the um, state would get much, much better. And then people could start self-policing and really taking on the role of making sure violence came out of their society and wasn't normalized anymore.
0: That's not an easy task, is it? Like we said at the very beginning, I just think that there's a lot of serious conversations that you probably are a part of. Like that is to sit down with someone and go, right, mate, congratulations. You've become like king of the hill for the time being. First on the agenda, second on the agenda, third on the agenda, like that guy is not going to be a very happy or popular or haven't he's definitely not going to have good sleep like for the rest of his tenure, he's not going to be sleeping very well
1: well so one thing I found out about these people who who run for office on these platforms is that first of all, they don't sleep they're like the energizer bunny. in fact, in um, the Republic of Georgia, Saakashvili, who's one of these uh, reformer types. Was known as the Energizer Bunny. That was his codename because he just didn't sleep. He had meetings at twelve. He had meetings at midnight. He had meetings at four in the morning. Oh, he just wow. all night. They're they're all like that. They're all hyperactive. At first, I thought it was just an aberration, <laughs> but and also I should say they're not really reformers. They're very interesting people. The people who look at a country like that, you know, imagine you look at a country that's basically a failed state. There's violence everywhere. There's corruption throughout the whole system. It looks like a complete basket case. And you say, you know, look at Venezuela right now. And you say, I'm going to take over and make this place good. You know, what kind of person thinks they can do that? Well, it's a particular kind of person. It's a very egotistical kind of a person, Mm -hmm. um, very high energy, and uh, someone who really believes in themselves a lot. And you need those characteristics. So they're good characteristics and that they need those things to get through and to do these incredibly tough tasks. But they have a dark side. And so you see these reformers start out on re- as reformers. And then as they start doing things that are more and more gray and people start challenging them, they get upset and they get more autocratic and they get more authoritarian and they need to be thrown out by the same population that voted them in. So you see this kind of loop of reform that goes like up and then down. Yeah. Um, and so it's really important for outsiders to help. Help the reformer at the beginning, but then recognize when that curve starts to turn, and not hold on to them too long, because if you if you keep thinking they're a reformer when they become an autocrat, you know that's the story of an awful lot of the independence fighters in a number of African countries, for instance.
0: Yeah, I get that. Were there any um, really surprising stories or any kind of um, shocking moments while you are doing your research? You said that you traveled to an awful lot of countries, an awful lot of interviews. Was there anything in particular which stood I mean, it sounds like there would have probably been quite a lot of highlights on the highlight reel, but was there anything in particular that stood out?
1: Oh, gosh, uh, so many stories. We could talk for another half hour, but um, I guess one of them, when I was in Colombia, I was trying to track down this investigative journalist. There was an investigative journalist who went by the name of Nacho, uh, like the chips. And so, yeah, um, Sounds
0: like a completely normal, yeah. <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Fa-
1: <laughs> absolutely. Like the the guy who had, he knew what had gone on inside the Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel. He knew what was going on inside the paramilitary groups. He had been targeted for assassination 22 times. Every, <laughs> everyone wanted to kill this guy because he knew so much. The Colombian military had tried to kill in their intelligence services, both the cartels, the paramilitaries. Just everyone had it in for him. And I wanted to know some of what he knew, because trying to figure out the violence in Colombia is really difficult. It's a really complex situation. So we'd we'd make appointments, then he'd cancel the appointments, and I'd make another appointment, and he'd cancel. And I I was getting ready to leave Bogota, and I really needed to meet with him. And finally, made an appointment. It is a fourth-story walk-up apartment building. And I said, okay, I'll be there. And he kept that appointment. So I go up to the apartment building. I walk up the four floors, I'm heavily pregnant, I should add, at this time. I was six months pregnant when I was doing that part of the research. So I'm this bowling ball walking up these four flights of stairs and get to his little tiny apartment. He locks maybe five, six padlocks on the door. And then he says, my bodyguard didn't show up today. Now, in Colombia, bodyguards are given by the government because the violence is so much that if you've been targeted a lot, you can request a state-funded bodyguard. Oh it's my an God. old, old tactic in Colombia that if the bodyguard doesn't show up, that's when you're going to be targeted next, um, because the state will withdraw the bodyguard and then someone will target you. So they lost a number of presidential candidates this way. So he says, "My bodyguard didn't show up today," and I'm thinking, "I'm sitting on your couch, six months pregnant." You know, right. but you know, his teenage daughter's in the room, right behind me, and she's this like lovely, beautiful teenage girl, and I'm just thinking, well, she doesn't seem scared. She's making a snack. um, I guess I will, you know, do this interview. And so, you know, I just sat watching the padlocks on the door, hoping that they held. And, um, we did the interview and he gave me incredible information that was really useful, for the book and, um, you know, so far so good. He's, he's made it through.
0: Wow. Are you still in contact with him? I'm going to guess he's uh, a difficult man to get hold of.
1: Off and on. I, you know, I had to ask him for permission to use the language that I used in the book and things like that. So a little bit.
0: That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. So
1: yeah. Well, it's that, Those are the guys that are and women who are really doing the brave work. You know, this the kind of uh, violence inquiry that that they do. That's why journalists are the canaries in the coal mine for all of this. That's why they keep getting killed all around the world because they are really the ones who expose what's going on in these countries.
0: So they're a degree of lifeblood, I suppose, to carry yeah, these messages absolutely. around. Um, so before we finish, I, I want you to ask. Most of the audience will be from the UK. But we mm-hmm. are we are exposed to the American uh, politics uh, with, without exaggeration, probably almost as much as we are to our our own. Especially in the last few months, we get the news. It's it's as newsworthy to hear Trump as it is to hear Theresa May, which is I think a marker for how uh, kind of dramatised uh, to a degree the American political system has become. Um, Moving forward, if you were if you were writing uh, an open letter to Donald Trump and to his advisors, what would you say with regards to trying to improve these inequalities and improve the way that certain areas of the country are at the moment?
1: That's interesting. So first of all, I should say to your UK audience that all the research was funded by DFID. DFID is really trying to figure out how to um, – how to fight violence in better ways, because the taxpayers passed a law in your country that uh, not 0.7% of the money has to go to development aid, and of that money, half goes to conflict affected states and and violent states. And so they fund research like this to figure out what do we do better. Um, And so I'm in deep contact with DFID, and I feel very strongly that that, uh, they do much better work than they get credit for, Mm -hmm. Um, really, really good work. What would I say to our government? I don't think I would start with Trump, to be honest. I mean, one of the the findings of this research is that if someone is complicit with violent groups and wants to run this kind of criminalized governing order, you can't make headway with that group. That's how they stay in power. Right? How does Trump stay in power? He's staying in power in part with a very nativist audience in America. They're not necessarily violent, but their interest is in a nostalgic return to whites being in charge of the country, Um, you know, a pre-1960s. If you look at the 20 percent of the voters that propelled Trump forward in the Republican primaries. So the other half of my brain works on American politics. I do international work half the time. So I think about this a lot. And if you break down the polls, there were about 20 percent of voters who weren't all Republican, I should add. These were often swing voters, typical half Democrat, half Republican. You know, they'd vote for either side who... um, propelled him in the primaries after they they voted Republican for that. And they heavily, heavily believed that you can't be a real American if you're not white, if you're not Christian, um, if you're an immigrant, you can't be a real American. You know, those are not common views in America, but they're the majority among his primary selectorate in the electorate. And so that's who he's campaigning to. That's his base, as you would say. And Uh, those people are not wanting to change the inequality. In fact, they want to turn it back. So I wouldn't go to them. I would go to state level governments where, um, you know, in America, we have a federal system that's quite real. And there's a lot of states that have leaders who do want to change things. And um, if you wanted to fight inequality, there's a couple of things you need to do. I think the first thing to recognize is that political equality has to come before and kind of with economic equality. It's not enough just to give away money. You know, there's all this talk now about a minimum wage, a guaranteed minimum wage. Um, That's fine. It's it's good to give poor people, uh, you know, some help. But what you see in places like Bihar, India and Colombia is people need to really be able to vote. They need to believe those votes count. They need to be able to change power when they have the ability to change power politicians have to cater to them too in a democracy. And so ultimately that allows them to get the economic help that they need, to get the jobs that they need even more than the handouts, you know, it's things like that. So the inequality has to start from that level of political power. And in America that has a lot to do with lobbying power mm, and, yes. um, you know, who who gets the right to get some time. And all of that has a lot to do with campaign finance in America. You know, the, the rules that say that, Um, the floodgates of money can open, make elections so expensive in America that people think it's just pure corruption, you know, just money for politics. It's not like that. I, I worked for a decade running a very political organization. And I didn't find almost anyone, there's a handful, but almost anyone who's just corrupt. What you find is that they have to campaign. To campaign, they need a lot of money. To make that money, they need to go speak at fundraisers with really, really rich people. And so they spend a huge amount of time with extremely rich people, even if they're people who care a lot about equality and inequality. They're spending all their time with really rich people so they can get the money together to run the election. So the really rich people's ideas rub off. Yeah. You know, they can't help but rub off. And so even if you start off wanting to help the poor, you're thinking about it through the eyes of a very rich person who has no idea what really would help the poor. And Over time, it becomes hard to separate those things. So it's the system of money in itself. It's not the corruption per se.
0: I totally get that. I'd be absolutely fascinated to have you back on so that we can discuss. I feel like we've got a really interesting conversation that you could um, enlighten some of our listeners about the difference between the U.S. and the the U.K. Uh, political systems and why those are the case, I've always been I've always been fascinated to work that out. So that uh, that may have to happen another time. But I, I've I've absolutely loved today, Rachel. Thank you very much for coming on. Uh, I will make sure that a link to a Savage Order, your new book, will be in the show notes below. Uh, where can the listeners find you online? And also, if there's any other resources, if or videos or um websites if people are interested have you got anywhere that you could recommend that they could go
1: uh sure so they could go to my website rachelkleinfeld.com and then they'll find you know the same name is on the book and uh they'll find most things that i do and most videos and so on and i can also send you some things to to link to um that would that would go directly to the heart of the matter
0: fantastic that sounds awesome rachel it's uh it's been a blast If I can twist your arm and if the audience want you back so that we can talk about some UK versus US stuff, that would be cool. If that's the case, make sure that you comment below. Drop me a message on Instagram or wherever else you are listening. But for now, thank you very much.